the meme really is like looking back at these Egyptian hieroglyphs. It's we live in a culture now where pictures and symbols can say thousands of words. And now the information age with it spread instantaneously, it, it truly is a revolution in, in thought and innovation and communication. And I, I suppose what may be seen as nihilism may just be really uh, when people see things that are no longer serving, they, they, they have no desire to uh, keep it afloat. Welcome to Specific Knowledge. I'm your host, Devin Marty. This is a podcast dedicated to exploring how people coordinate and build in a dynamic world where knowledge is distributed and ephemeral. With a focus on creative destruction and the role of blockchain as a decentralizing technology, we discuss new ways to reimagine and reshape the current social order. I'm joined by my two friends, Lucas and Ryan who are experts in their field. Today's episode is called GME and Mimetic Nihilism. We hope you enjoy episode 16 of Specific Knowledge. All right, guys, welcome. Episode 16, GME and Mimetic Nihilism. Ryan, Lucas, how are you guys doing? I'm doing great. Um, enjoying some time with the daughter and doing, getting caught up on some reading and just, you know, enjoying the crypto markets, uh, new all-time highs. And yes. So yeah, that's been exciting and just kind of moving some, some stuff around my portfolio and, and kind of eager to get this conversation going. I know we got some fun topics ahead of us. Yeah. I'm excited for this one. Uh, Lucas, how are you doing? I'm doing well, brother. I'm, I'm feeling great. I'm enjoying some nature time and some R and R um, however, I'm, I'm also excited with all of the activity in the crypto markets and some really neat projects that Ryan and I are working on, even with, with Jacob, um, with some videos and in, in helping people take advantage of the next wave in, in this market. That being said, I'm also excited to try to say the title of this podcast five times as fast as I can when we're done. Mimetic nihilism, mimetic nihilism, mimetic NGME, throw that in there. Yeah, it's a mouthful. Um, yeah, well, let's talk about that. So GME, uh, for those of you who are not familiar, we'll just cover this real quick. Uh, GME is the ticker sign for GameStop, uh, which is a publicly traded stock on the uh, New York Stock Exchange. And uh, back in January of 2021, uh, there was a huge hubbub about it when, well, there was a, a short squeeze where the video game company, which isn't really doing much as a company anymore, shot up in value. And it had to do with uh, large losses of short sellers and, and certain hedge funds who were being financially, their, their financial repercussions uh, from groups like the Reddit group, Wall Street Bets, and uh, a bunch of people who just came together to punish uh, the, the people who were manipulating the public float or the free floats, which is the proportion between the, the you know public investor money and, and lock shares. And um, as that was uh, manipulated, we'll get into more detail about how and, and what that actually means. But that meant the, uh, the people who were shorting it, so these large institutions, these hedge funds, had to rebuy the shares to cover their previous positions that they had been shorting, uh, which caused the price to you know just skyrocket. And yeah, and, and this was a 
really big discussion in the space. And, and, and I'm excited for our discussion today because uh, we're going to address a lot of very interesting things that now looking back on it, we can take and realize that this is uh, not necessarily breaking uh, conventional economics, but to a degree, uh, it, it really is. And there's a lot of interesting game theory and and mimetic or, or meme value uh, and decentralized workforces and, and, and ideologies coming together to um, yeah, punish people who in the traditional financial world have been taking advantage of people who don't have a whole lot of money or, or just uh, are not part of the monetary. You could say the elite, the 1%. Yeah. All right. There's a definitely a class to mention to this. I know we'll, we'll For sure. hit on some of that, but I guess, I guess one of the things to highlight is I, I think this is a test of what you would, you know, you'd say the classical way to understand prices and when me and Lucas will probably not disagree completely, but we'll have, you know, maybe a different emphasis on, on that. But, but yeah, I do see it as a sort of a test of the official narrative. Now, whether or not markets have always kind of had these, these tendencies and had, you know, that's, that's probably true, but the degree to which the coordination and the, um, the, I guess you'd, yeah, the coordination, the degree to which we see it is potentially novel, I would say to our time with our, with the technology and social media and all, all of that. Yeah. So, real, real quick, yeah, Ryan, before that. we start, sure. can, well, can we break down what a short is? Uh, Cause I know that's not the most obvious uh, thing for, for many people. And then maybe just talk about who the wall streets bets people are um, and, and that whole group just to define the, the people we're working with. Okay. Yeah. I'll take the wall street bets part of it because Sweet, I, you know, I have a better handle on that. And I think Lucas, you know, I know he's got a history and options, so he might be able to be the person to, to give you the short explanation, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> wall street bets is a subreddit on, on Reddit. It's a sub, it's a community of people who, who trade um, financial advice and strategies and kind of what they're, what they're reading the market is. There's an edu- you know, it's a bit of a collective education effort, I guess you would say. And of course, there's uh, memes and jokes and in-group, out-group dynamics that happen and, and evolve in, in that space. And I know there's a lot of uh, very, well, it's very, it's, it's kind of characterized by a lot of amateurs and then maybe a few people who do have an understanding. But through the, throughout the time, there's been some, some very deep discussions some, and some very fascinating insights have been revealed on there that you might not find in other you know more mainstream outlets and, and i think zero hedge is another example of, of a community that has some some toxicity to it as well but there every now and then there's some maybe some gems that reveal you know kind of how the market works at a certain level and with with wall street bets they they did a deep dive into into shorting just the practice of shorting um and what in kind of how that can be used to manipulate markets and to take short term short term advantage of of price swings and through basically through manipulating prices uh, capture a profit and it's oftentimes done through uh, or done at the expense of otherwise you know decently capable sound companies that have that are profitable to some degree maybe not as profitable as as they could be with with certain uh, you know, strategies and, and changes and, and, uh, and how they do things, but they're nonetheless, we're, we're profitable, but if they're targeted for a short squeeze, they can be, you know, they can be, um, essentially their, their stock price can become almost worthless through, through this kind of process through a, 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 board, a, a short squeeze is what, well, not a short squeeze through a, through the, through the short, 
through sorting essentially is what it is you pile up you can and this is where lucas will take take in but uh, essentially the idea there is you take out a bunch of promises to sell a an asset and then those promises are equivalent to uh, essentially having the asset yourself and selling it so there's and this can um pervert this the, what appears to be the supply of or the or the offers the supply of offers for that asset which can make things which drive prices lower and you know i'll, I'll shed said uh I'll, you know see the floor now but that's that's my take on a short as well you did i think that sounded good um uh, the easiest definition i just looked it up to keep it simple for anyone listening to explain it further a short position is created when a trader sells a security first with the intention of repurchasing it or covering it later at a lower price so it shorting like you like ryan was saying it's it's done um often it could be used as a tool to to drive prices down but um usually when when people take out a short position it's a bearish um it's expecting that the prices are going to go down and and that's where the gme short squeeze comes into play because um it, it's it's it involves a group of people becoming aware of a short position in traditional finance that traditionally speaking historically speaking this information has never been able to a get out in a timely manner to enough people or or be spread quickly enough for for people at the retail level consider dumb money to to be able to take advantage of this opportunity now that being to squeeze, said to squeeze to, the shorts right to squeeze the shorts now that being said the ability for certain financial companies to be licensed and have permission to create shorts uh, this tech this technique has been used for a long time to drive the prices of of actually really good companies um and to be able to put put companies out of business and and pick up their assets on the dollar it's 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 actually something that's been there's many books on and many documentaries and it's 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 one of the um power the strengths of the financial elite in this game theory model the the ability to create shares out of thin air and use those shares that they've created to push the price down now yeah yeah i mean that's i, I think that about covers it uh, shorting a stock is is basically opening a position that you don't have promising that at a future date you'll you'll purchase those those shares and it's the expectation that at that future date you'll be able to purchase them at a at a much lower price, and, that, and then that's this, where the squeeze comes in is if that price is higher, then the person who shorted it has to take take their medicine and they have to go out into the market and purchase those shares at a higher price, yeah. and and that's just you know that's just the risk they took now the issue that we get in with the GME short squeeze, and I'm going to hand it back over to Ryan, because I know he's familiar with this process as well, but it's, it's the ability and the game theory of the current traditional financial model for, for institutions to be able to short and, and borrow actually against um, a company, borrow more shares than actually exist. And, and then what you get into 
what the GME short squeeze is really all about. It's it's about put trying to put certain I don't want to say you know nefarious or malicious actors because the game allowed it to be played this way, uh, and for generations the people who work in these clearing houses and in these banking uh, systems have been able to to benefit um, from this game over and over again. But this time they were forced to go out and to continue purchasing this stock at a higher price, but there weren't enough shares out there. And, and that's where we get into the coordination of Wall Street bets and their hodling of, of GameStop and working to drive the price to, to punish and, 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 you know, um, well, for well, yeah, different I think, reasons. I think yeah. you're hitting on the, with the core point here is that this is political, right? This is, oh, yeah. um, there's, it was political before GameStop. I'm, I'm sorry, before wall street bets, before Reddit got involved, it certainly was political after because they, their, their, their aim is expressly political in, in a sense that they want to cause a, a harm or, or losses for a group of people that they believe have been rigging the game, right? And taking advantage of, of an unfair, unsound practice. So there's definitely a, a political angle to this. And I think to kind of circle back around to what our to one of our themes is in this channel is that, well, what does that mean for, for markets when, when prices have, a, have such a large political dimension to them, right? Because I mean, I think, and we could always agree that this is not a new thing. I mean, there's always been political dimensions to, to capitalism and to price and to price discovery. Uh, go back to England and the beginning of capitalism. You had the uh, you had these this movement called the um, enclosure movement, where uh, large well, large tracts of land which were previously owned or not owned in title but owned in practice and in custom uh, over over generations had been farmed by these families and they were excluded and kicked off the land and the land was enclosed. It was previously, it was a common area without fences and without private property. And it was just kind of like a, a historical trend tradition where families had their homestead. And so everybody knew where everybody's property was, but it wasn't like a deed thing where, but where there were strict lines and it was, um, you know, surveyed and everything. So this property was cleared off and these people were moved into the, left homeless and they were left without a way of feeding themselves and sustaining themselves. So they were forced to go work in, in the factories in the cities and that became a, a way to get cheap labor. And so labor costs fell. So you got it right there, labor prices, labor markets, heavily influenced by a political, a political element. And then you, you know, you go out to go through history and that's, that's not going to be a thing that changes. Yeah. You'll see, you'll see it in the monetary system. You'll see it in, in the tax system. You see it in the, in the zoning for homes. You see it in the way roads are built and highway system, divided communities. You see it in eminent domain. Uh, you can see it in the tariffs codes and the immigration system. I mean, all in all, all the way down the list, the entire economy is influenced by politics in so many different ways that to divide them and separate them and talk to talk about pure market prices and pure, the pure supply and demand effect on prices is what's is it doesn't make a whole bunch of sense because i mean it does make a lot of sense in theory on paper and, and if we're constructing idealist ideal narratives of how things ought to be then maybe but in reality like lucas like lucas has been wanting to remind us uh in our discussions before we started this this podcast that you know these things are have never been purely separate and but but the interesting thing is is what happens when technology shifts 
and makes it possible for the out group to be to to, to coordinate and to have po- and yeah. have power and have Wait, strategy and to strategize. This is, this is a really important point that if you don't mind my interruption. Yeah. No, 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 go ahead. It is you've you've seen it I think everywhere in the past hundred years uh, as technologies evolved, it's just gotten more and more. Uh, let, let's pick examples of I think what I'm talking about is decentralized fighting forces, if if you will, rebelling against the status quo uh, group or center uh, hierarchical centric power. Right? You have. I think a really good example, if you're into like war, is uh, you know you can there are some in World War II, uh, but that's a more high level. Um, but Vietnam, I think that's a, a the decentralized Viet Cong fighting force against the centralized U.S. military. It's it, mm. it was far more efficient to make decisions out on uh, out on the field and, and in the forest rather than having the generals make it back in the in the boardroom. Right? They, they didn't have the specific knowledge. Right? The local knowledge of the lo- yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Now you get to things like uh, the the protests and and the um, the revolutions in Hong Kong, the social revolutions there, using decentralized uh, social media platforms to vote on what we're going to do today. How are we going to protest this? Uh, you know, the, the centralized right. power that is China. Right. Um, I was there. I've I've I saw amazing things happen where uh, within nine hours of uh, a nurse who was there to help uh, had been uh, injured by a rubber bullet and had her tragically her eye shot out uh, nine hours later in the international airport was overtaken by protesters and they all had bandages over their eyes it's like how do you coordinate things that fast and and come up with those ideas and get people behind it? it's this, that flexibility oh my gosh yeah, yeah you, no yeah good luck in a, any kind of coercive you know, central structure Another example that comes to mind is in Afghanistan right now, uh, women have been, there's been a lot of rollback of the rights and liberties of women because of the Taliban taking over and a Bitcoin and crypto is helping women have ability to use their money and and, uh, actually engage in commerce in ways of like trying to leave the country and do and accomplish other needs for their family. And I think, so it's just another another example of technology uh, kind of giving a tool to the powerless in, in a way that's not, it's historical. And yeah, it's and historically interesting. It, it's it's basic game theory when you get down to it, right? I think there's a a Herbert Gintis book called The Bounds of Reason um, that I read a few years ago, but in it he suggests that you know a person enters a situation predisposed to cooperate with others and trust others, right? And they'll continue to cooperate at a level commensurate to others, but if the others lower their level of cooperation or trust, it's likely that the per- this person will also do so even right. at a detriment to themselves to punish those who sure. they don't trust, right? Yep. So you, it's just this basic, now that you have the power being put back into people's hands through decentralized tools like social medias or uh, financial systems like Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, you now have uh, a leveling of the scale that, you know, yeah. that, that feeling has always been there, but now the process to be able to be actionable about it and, and make some change is, I think that's what GameStop- Well, I think now that you bring up, now that you bring up game theory, it makes me think of something. So you have the prisoner's dilemma, right? And then you look at that as a one-off game. And the most rational decision is to is to uh, rat and to say, oh, no, you know, we did it. And and, and to kind of tell on your partner, right? Because you're going to get a, little, a cut in your sentence and then they go, yeah. they go the longer sentence. And and you know that they're facing the same incentive. So they're both, you're both going to, so you might as well do it first, right? But if but you find out that this doesn't hold, 
that you can have cooperation and coordination between criminals if you do an iterated uh, prisoner dilemma, which means that there's uh, one round one, round two, round three, round four, and so on, right? And the reason is, is because over, over subsequent rounds, we learn to react to the strategy of the other player. And over, over the iterations, we both realize that, okay, well, if, if, uh, if we both cooperate, then we get better, we'll, we'll have a better outcome. It's, it's really only the one-off prisoner's dilemma mm-hmm. that gets you the, the, uh, the prisoner dilemma outcome. It's when you, but when you do iterations of it, you, you get to a cooperative thing. And, I, and if you think about history in that sense, and the political dynamic that's going on with, with the rules of the game, with, with the way the institutions and clearinghouses and bailouts and the ability to treat promises as equal to, to having an actual asset, right? All, all these things have been, and, and the shorting, just the practice of shorting and, and raiding companies. These things have been uh, one-off prisoners' dilemmas that we haven't been able. There hasn't been. I mean, they, they've been. I mean, it's been. It's been reiterating, but we haven't been able to react to it in a strategic way. So there's been no cost or consequence for them acting this way. It's been like you know, get out of jail free card on the part of the elite. But now with the internet and social media and the way these decentralizing forces are helping us to coordinate and to and to learn and to share knowledge, we're uh, seeing that there is. It's more like an iterated game. And so that the, the now there's there's actual losses being delivered for for the uh, for the suboptimal strategy on the part of a player that has always just won the every time always won. But now they're seeing okay, playing the same game doesn't work out. And now, uh, so it, what that tells me is there's the second iteration. Then maybe they'll choose a different strategy, right? They're gonna they're, we could collectively see that the game. The game theory has changed with society between the between the classes, between the, the political elite and the people, and that there's going to be a new and the next iteration has to look different because this strategy is not paying off. And I, I leave that. That's my main thought with the game theory angle is that uh, it, it's like we're now in an iterated game, whereas technology, the technological change is what made that possible. I love it. I think and and. Really, that goes right back to the mimetic nihilism and the intention of all those who came together um, to partake in, in the game in the GameStop uh, short squeeze, right? Because you're having people, prices don't just reflect supply and de- demand for that asset. Prices can reflect people wanting to see change. You know, people are talking about blockchain technology being able to... Um, have the supply chain coordinated such a way that anyone can look at a good on the shelf and see where it was made. Every factory it's been to, to make sure there was no, you know, slave labor or um, something that you wouldn't want to support. And that gives the people to, to support with, with what they purchase. And really you look at the short squeeze and, and people can, for political reasons, if they, if they believe that a system is corrupt or not right, then, then the price can reflect that as well, right? It can reflect people wanting to, to take action together to see something turn the you know, other way. I think now I like the fact that you're saying that because it's almost like there's this new category of this new concept in economics is being born. And it's always been there, but I think it's just becoming more clear now. So in the past, you, when we talked about the value of goods, there was always this use value and then there was exchange value, right? So use value was what can you do with the thing? How much do you value its services to you? So if it's like a, it's a house, it can house you, keeps you, 
you know, cool and dry or free, you know, from the elements. So that, so it's got a direct value to you. It has services that you enjoy. Then there's exchange value, which is purely the value that you can get for something when you trade it for somebody else to somebody else. And, and if you look at what makes up those values, it's just a, it's a collective summary of all the individual uh, use values that exist. And you come to this, um, this kind of appraisal, this collective appraisal that becomes a price, but it's, so the exchange values always tied back to the, to the use values. Well, it seems like there's this new layer that we have to include now, or at least be cognizant of. And it's, the, it's almost like the, the political value of a thing. Or moral value. Or the moral, yeah, you could see it that way too, the moral value, right? But I, I say, I, I'm using the word political because I'm thinking about the ultimate questions of how do we want to live together as, as men or women in society as being you know, the political issues. And to the extent that, the, that a good or an investment or an asset it has a direct influence or a direct effect on the kind of world you want to live in. And then there's a more, where that moral dimension comes into it. That it seems to me, that's such a profound catalyst for, for action that, that just, just, that just, it had, it almost belongs in its own category, right? Like what, try to estimate the elasticity of morality and see, and see how much people are willing to suffer a cost or suffer higher prices to see their, the good, to see the good society, you know, that, that that's going to be, that's a whole different level of calculation. Right. And I think that leads into uh, if we're talking about like price elasticity, this has far reaching and, and like nouveau implications on price. It's no longer a function of supply and demand, right? There's this whatever moral elasticity or um, it's just, there's, there's this other group, right. That is really hard to define and, and uh, to numerate. Right. Yeah, it's think, also just expanding it, right? Supply yeah. and it's just sure. adding yes. variables and adding layers to make the model, so to speak, more more accurate and more reflective of of. Or maybe how- it's always still just supply and demand, but the decisions on what to demand, uh, how it's yeah. expressed, and what to supply, and at what prices, is now impacted by a whole new set of variables, right? What people on Reddit think. What, what, what's the cultural, what, what's mean, what's, what's the mimetic, uh, you know, criteria or what's the mimetic mm-hmm. content in society right now? That's the next, that's the, the new variable, but I, th- I still think it's a, it's a function. So you can still kind of just reduce it to supply and demand. And I yeah. guess, but demand just, has a new, it's more variables right. are added. Yeah, exactly. What, what, I, what I like how we understand separating it. I, I think I, I see what you're saying. It, it could be just rolled up into demand lazily. But- yeah. Um, it, it seems that we look at these examples and, you know, I said moral, you said political, but they, they, they cross over and we see how the decision-making ha- has an effect when, when people see that it has an effect on the model, on the political system itself. Right. And I, I guess if you're doing a regression, a regression uh, calculation to explain prices, all of this was captured in the error term before. Right, you because that that's economists build these fancy models and they test them, and then they try to include as many variables and they put the weights on each variable and they try to have all that add up to 100 percent so they can explain fully what they're trying to explain. But there's always this residual that's left over and they just tack that on and say that's that's in the error term. They have have a little e on there to explain all the things they can't explain. And I feel like this is belongs in that bucket. And if you and if you can pull it out and put it on and give it in its actual, give it in a variable and give it a weight and make it you know explicit, it definitely gets us a little closer to understanding 
markets and in society. I dig it. I mean, I like the fact that it brings people to an understanding that a price uh, can reflect a lot of different things, right? Yes. Um, it, it doesn't have to just reflect on utility and exchange value that right. we're, we're, we're seeing that it can be a signal uh, for people that are, that are coming together to, to try to make change in the world. Um, so there's that moral political that mm-hmm. component that you mentioned. Uh, I also thought it would be relevant to this uh, podcast to mention something that just happened and it applies to how maybe this new technology can shake up the game theory, not just between the, the outsiders and the insiders, but between insiders themselves. And I say this because I hope we do a video on this shortly, Ryan, but just recently, I think it was announced today that the Houston Fire Department has just purchased $25 million worth of Bitcoin and Ethereum for their firefighters retirement pension fund out of their $5 billion fund, they have acquired $25 million of Bitcoin and Ethereum. And a reason, one of the reasons they've done this, they're happy about this is because they have had issues of their pension fund being drained or used by the city. And and there's an actual ongoing court case between a previous mayor, but, um, for for different reasons and of course they have to go through court to fight it and and now when you start moving to the blockchain and these digital assets there are ways of taking more control over their pension and preventing something like that from happening in the future so a little in-house defense oh that's fascinating yeah i haven't heard about that but i do remember the the the, um kind of the fight that you're talking about between the fire department and the mayor. That was a, that was a big deal. I remember there was a raise or something they were promised and, and I think, and it didn't, they, they, they changed received it. it. They, yeah, received they received it, it and they the wanted vote. to take it back or something. Yeah. And then after uh, they received it by the vote of the city, um, city council, the mayor, certain people um, reneged and said there was a problem. And you know, there's, there, there's been a history of tension between the mayor and this in the city and and the fire department, but another instance is their pension fund being uh, used. And you know, I'm not surprised because that's been a running story for since well, really since the housing crisis in 2008, and since the Fed and the QE and the bailouts, and we've seen all this all these new monthly purchases from the Fed and all this new money being put into the economy and interest rates for various reasons are so low that. Pension funds, which have you know traditionally relied on bonds and and yield from bonds, uh, treasuries and other others very safe investments. They've they've had they've been um, you know they've had their income shut down because of this. They've called it the euthanasia on the saver with this zero interest rate environment. The yield from any kind of savings is very small. So yeah, for pension funds then to have to, to go from that environment then have to deal with local you know, politicians dipping their fingers. Uh, that's, you know, that's, that's gotta be maddening if you're the one in charge of those accounts and trying to make those promises stretch and pay and, and be real. So I could see definitely the motivation for, for moving into a, you know, I could a more, something they could have more custody over and more control over, you know, um, I don't want to shift gears, but this might be a good time to do it. Yeah, there's a, yeah, there's this cool idea really it's back. It's not that much of a shift really. So this idea uh, called Futarchy, 
I don't know if you guys have heard of it. Have mm-hmm. you heard about that? Okay, so I'll just give a brief explanation in case our listeners aren't familiar. But Futarchy is this vision of government, which uh, has been proposed by an economist <laughs> of all people, right? And, and the idea of Futarchy is that there be certain official measures of national well-being would be designed. I guess this would be like, you know, in a broad sense, GDP. And then you get even more narrow. You can go down to um, access to certain services and clean water and, you know, uh, I don't know, um, education and, you know, various things you could look at to see, okay, what are, what are the well, what are the measures that kind of define what well-being looks like? And I'm sure healthcare would be part of it. So it'd be various, you know, statistics that we'd be target targeting, I guess. And then, so you combine these measures, these national measures of well-being with prediction markets, which essentially would be the way that the policy would be would be chosen. So we we kind of we we all we'd establish what the good life looked like in a collective sense at the national level, and then there would be these prediction markets, which would be used to select between various policy options, and then the, whatever policy policy option the prediction market selected as being the one the one that would be the most likely to to uh, meet those national well-being measures that would be what would be the the policy so it'd be kind of a way of just crowdsourcing the policy decision making to a market and i guess and and on, on its face that seems like a good idea but then when you start thinking about what happens when gamification becomes uh, when when non you know when you start gamifying prices and finance and when supply when pure supply and demand considerations you know based in uh like you know revenues and profits and losses or earnings per share or whatever other kind of draw dry calculations you know economists and finance people use to say what's a fair price when all that is swamped by political concerns and people trying to game a a price or a market I don't know what, you know, what does that mean for Futarchy for how efficient that model of government would be? And I think that, I think it kind of really kind of, it's a clever, the, the, the idea is supposed to be a clever way to get around politics, but it really doesn't because it's an, it's another way of, it's really kind of naive in my mind because the politics is always going to be there. And just because you have a prediction market, I don't believe you can just guarantee the political concerns won't creep in right won't won't feed back in to uh and and people won't take politics as their as as maybe their rationale or their motivation instead of a purely mechanical understanding of which policy will be able to be the best right no you're exactly right and instead of you know this situation where markets are controlling political decisions i think it becomes well i think inherently divides people more uh, and I think we've maybe talked about this in the past uh, when we've talked about like decentralized jurisdictions and and how it could work with with crypto um, and, and blockchain tech and governance systems. Where you know in in this case, yeah, you're using prediction markets to determine where policy which policies will be most effective, right? And and that's how I don't know if that's necessarily how they're funded or whatever, but but it it creates a market around it. What about governance systems which just evolve this uh, beyond where if the the majority think this, the minority don't have to pay for it, right? The minority right. can go and pay themselves. So I think there are already better options than yes, Futarchy. Yes, yes, yes. I would agree. It's something more uh, a la carte where you can kind of yeah. it's distributed and decentralized and you know we can we can get along and we don't have to agree on the same policy and neighbors can have different 
tax regimes that they've subscribed to, right? Or yeah, whatever. It's called futarchy because it's it's futile. Now we've got <laughs> now we've got decentralized autonomous organizations. Yeah. Yep. Seriously. Well, it reminds me of the of the uh, anarcho capitalist view that that the idea is oh we just need to get rid of government and have everything be uh, entrepreneurs selling a, a product like um where you know and, and that would solve all the political problems as if you know politics is only something that happens or started real, rather. Uh, in the last few hundred years when we started having markets or in before that, before markets, there was no politics. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, I, I, one of you brought up a point of many weeks ago that I loved. It's, you know, there's all this political, religious, blah, 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 everyone here and there, but the market is the one place where everyone gets along and, and comes together and trades and you don't really see that. And I think maybe it was Lucas, it was you um, who had brought this point up. But it is like it is interesting how they can be independent of it of one another, but they're still so intertwined now with with the technologies we've created, and yet we now have tech that we can get back to that initial uh, initial way of of life. I'll take credit for it. I know it's something that Ryan and I both talk about mm-hmm. all the time, so I'm sure we both. Uh, I'm, I was kidding about that, but no, sure. Um, <laughs> I, I think that you know that's that's the reality of the beauty of really when we say the market when we say where where people are allowed to exchange freely without third party and yes you know that that's really what we're talking about and there have been places you know um all i mean there's examples all over the world in war-torn areas where the people of of different religious beliefs come together in, in the area that's designated as as the market but but we see it when we go to the store. We see it in, in life. What is the market value when, when there's no polit- politicization of human action in, in, in the market? Well, then what do people value? They value honesty. They value transparency. They value um, quality. They value uh, good service. They value all, all these wonderful things. Um, and, and if you don't get that, if someone else is able to provide something uh, better than the market, so to speak, will will show that and reflect that. And, unless, of course, we have a game theory system that creates protectionism and barriers to entry and is able to prevent the, the cost from um, being borne on those who are taking certain actions. And that that's really so the question is, is maybe everything is really the market. Well, can I say something and maybe get your guys' take on it? Um, blockchain itself is, is that it provides transparency. It provides the services you just discussed that people from no matter your background uh, care about, right? And, and want to, uh, to have. So you, you do get that with blockchain technology, and, and I've experienced this myself, and I'm sure you guys have as well, interacting with people in the space who have backgrounds uh, you know, and, and beliefs that I'm sure you don't share. And, and in a traditional setting, uh, you know, whatever it might be, a debate, you would, uh, you would argue against them or, or have different views. But you don't hear because this is, this is that transparent market. But taking it one step further... Blockchain has almost become a philosophy that, I mean, it is, it has become a philosophy, period. 
but is it to an extent where you even overlook the other people uh, who are in this sphere who you would otherwise disagree with who are now fighting for this decentralized ethos and and, and worldview and, and technology for, that will better everyone's lives because they're here in it with you do you find yourself uh, you know thinking tribalistically about them in in a positive light in in a way that you otherwise wouldn't have so the market has essentially become the philosophy yeah i mean i could see that, that there's this uh sense of fraternity around mm -hmm. people in this space because of shared goals and visions of how you know society could change because it's, it's very much a, a a social movement is just as much as as it, as it is a financial um phenomenon right yeah so yeah, I definitely see that there's that elements is, is big and, and, and there are people, but even with that said, there's plenty of beefs within the crypto community, oh, right? Between oh, yeah. some of the egos and things Yes, and tribes, there's still some tribalism going on. One thing I have found is that the smaller niche you get in, 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 in tribal and not tribal in outgroup communities, whether it's like economics or, or politics or any, or anything in between the smaller the group gets, the more, and the more insular they become, right. Where they, it's kind of comes like an echo chamber to some degree. Then the, 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 the wars, the battles they have in between each other are sometimes more savage than they have with their real enemies. It's, it's like, who can be the closest to the, to the, to the pure vision and who's a, and who's a heretic, right. I've seen this in economic circles with, uh, especially with specifically with Austrian economic circles in the, and the intra-Austrian wars that have happened between those, between these two fact, between these various factions, and some of those battles get way more heated than they get between, say, the Austrians when they talk about um, the neoclassicals or the or the socialists or the Marxists or anything like that. I mean, even and even that can be can be kind of heightened. But when when you get and I've seen it with the libertarian community too. When you get two libertarians that are on in opposite factions. The battles that, that you see between them are are ridiculous. You know, it gets bad, and you would think that they would have a lot they agree on, and that would overwhelm their um, their what would divide them. But I guess I think it goes back to ego. It starts you start to it's kind of like you know holier a holier than thou kind of syndrome, where it's where it's like I have the true faith, and and these all these heretics you know need to get behind my vision, or they're or they're lost. Yeah, I think that phenomenon can become a thing. But um, with crypto, it, I don't. It doesn't seem to take over because there's so much excitement. We're fighting a shared enemy that's so much stronger than all of us separately. That the the gains, and the, and the other thing is that we're we're on the verge of winning. Whereas in these other communities, they're not. They're on the verge of being completely unheard. Right. Some of these battles that are going on in Austrian communities or libertarian communities or Marxist communities, no one cares or pays attention or listens to it. And the only people who are involved are the people in those communities. But with and it's because and their and their enemies are you know like the state or or the Federal Reserve or the, you know these huge things are not that they they have no chance of really doing anything against. But with crypto, I feel like the chance of being successful and, and changing society is so much closer at hand that that the time to sit around arguing about tribal visions it just seems kind of futile. It's like no 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 we gotta yeah. we got too much going on here. <laughs> this is, this has to be we have to focus focus on this right. And I yeah. think if if that wasn't the case, and there wasn't so much success in, in mainstream adoption and and um, and market uh, caps and all, all the above, if you didn't see that success, then you'd see a lot more you'd see a lot more sparks flying between the tribes. 
I think the only place you, well, there's definitely other places you see it in crypto, but the biggest one is the Bitcoin maximalists versus, mm-hmm. let's say, the Ethereum maximalists who are, uh, you know, fewer and far between. But the, you know, the, you do have this, uh, it's kind of ridiculous. And I know we've talked about it a lot Bitcoin maximalism being when you take it to its furthest extent, it actually destroys what Bitcoin is about and destroys the decentralized uh, technology, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah, there there is that component, but there's also the component of we're trying to sell a lot of people on this, right? And it's not just people who are uh, in in the lower classes of the world or not a part of the financial, uh, you know, superpowers or whatever. Those people are also interested, right? We've we've discussed mm-hmm. CBDCs, we've discussed this technology, and and it in the hands of others, right? You have a lot of institutional money very interested in this technology. So when you have a group that is trying to discuss this technology in a way, and, and already it's complex, and then you hear them say, well, Bitcoin's the only good one. Oh, no, no, but Ethereum's the only good one. It's like, oh my gosh, it's, it's, we don't need this level of confusion for such an a expansive technology that's not, you know, it's not localized like, like Marxism or right. uh, libertarianism or whatever. It's, it's so far reaching and sure it's like an anarcho-libertarian mindset, and, but there's also some other things in there. I, I think we're start. I mean, this is a, a, a sample size of the real world, no matter what we'd, we'd like to believe. The difference is this technology gives us an ability to communicate and, and organize just like the wall street reddit's uh wall, wall street bets the, the reddit group uh, and so it's the potential for change that hasn't exist but you know if you really look at crypto now you're gonna find like you were talking about maximalists you're gonna find so many people that don't know about the current financial system don't care about the current financial system have no desire to learn about all the problems that this solved for, for many people, it's what, when did I get in? How much is it worth? Um, what are the tax implications where I live and um, what am I going to be told I'm allowed to use tomorrow? And, and, and so now there are a few people who recognize, well, that's irrational and that, <clears throat> considering what the technology represents and the potential that it has and how it operates, but still it's, it's still a knowledge question in a knowledge game. So the game theory is going to be how do we acquire, how do, how do, how do we educate ourselves and others enough to understand the potential to use this technology for a better way? And, and I think that what makes blockchain so different and so unique is that who cares? I, I mean, we're not going to, even in the Bible, uh, Jesus, the scripture didn't walk around just changing everybody's minds and fix the world with the wave of a wand. I mean, to, to expect that we're, we're going to get some majority, uh, uh, you know, mental uh, shift at any given point in time, it's, it, that's irrational and, and that shouldn't be the expectation for change. I think we, what, with blockchain, we have this David and Goliath potential. We have the potential for what we've talked about in the past. We have the potential for people who do wish to um, socially contract and, and create their own jurisdictions, but in, in, a, in a contractual way. I mean, if you, if you look at modern government and modern world as nothing more than men and women engaging in voluntary contracts at any given point in time, which 
in a legal sense, uh, this is not legal advice, but from a, I mean, from a, from a really, that's, that's what the world is. That's what we live in. And until men and women change those contracts and agreements, and some people have, we absolutely live where there are different jurisdictions and um, some within others and some um, separate from others, you know, uh, whether it's through a political, spiritual, or, or other uh, various beliefs, there, there are separate jurisdictions, separate laws that people uh, voluntarily subscribe to within those systems. So I, I feel that what what's blockchain is unique in that it allows people to put their social contract, put their their belief in all that that labor, that energy, those those digital assets or what have you, uh, put 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 make that on that same trusting uh, because that is that transparent public ledger that allows people to kind of put their money where their mouth is. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it makes sense. I mean, yeah. I know, I mean, <laughs> I, I kind of went on uh, on a few tangents, but you can go <laughs> jump in on any one of them. Yeah, I mean, I agree that uh, the future you know, kind of to, to diffuse the kind of the conflicts is the solution there is going to be to get more more uh, pluralism, right? More polycentricity, more overlapping uh, jurisdictions that um, people can move between, right? Like, people, having... like blockchain allows people to do it. And we're going to see people do it, but we don't have to expect some huge, you know, uh, change in tide and opinions of all these people. Like literally it may just start as small DAOs, small decentralized autonomous organizations that, that just create and build and, and do what they believe. Cause that my point is, is take the sample of how many people in the world today, the kind of change that they wish to see based upon what they understand. And I think you're going to get the same sample size in blockchain. Right. Yeah. Cause you're never going to get mass consensus on anything really. So it's all about just trying to get enough people to where you can do your own thing without being messed with by the rest. Right. And, and, and how many people in the world today are, are actively seeking to understand the corruption in the system with a belief that they can act and change and make a difference. There's a lot of apathy. There's, it's, yeah. there's ignorance, there's apathy. There are so many conditions. And, and that when you take the sample size of how many people are choose to, to, to understand more and seek to find out where these contradictions and, and inconsistencies are in the institutions we create and how we can use this technology to make it better, that, is often often it's a small group of people but the beautiful thing is it doesn't it never needs to right. be the huge it never needs to be it just needs to have have some thinkers have some tinkerers working and building and what's cool is like look at blockchain yeah there are some projects that may have developers and team members that are trying to make the world and there's also people that are purely just trying to create a new product that can make a lot of money on this right. ecosystem or that ecosystem because they know how to write this code. They understand how this exchange works and they can benefit from this. Not, you know, I mean, and they can market it, right. And they can market it and they can make some money. They can build a website and they yeah, can not have another token. trying to uh, create a new, a new way to live. In, in fact, we look at the market, we look at nomics.com or CoinGecko or one of these a year or two years from now, how many of these, projects 
are are going to be around and how many of them are are really just the 2017 ICO kind of pump and dumps waiting right. until waiting until the new regulations come in in a local jurisdiction and then all and then they all flee and uh, with with their runoff yeah with their well, you know it's yeah. something i just thought about is that we're we're talking about GameStop as being this this outlier right of of a, an asset that that whose price doesn't reflect fundamentals it's got this political dimension you change you know kind of interfering with the price the, the calculation and the signals and the efficiency of markets to discount the future and all this but you could also say the same thing about the whole crypto space because you know there's not really a revenue stream there it, there's a lot of value. A lot of the value is tied to its its potential to change. You know, to change things. It's it's its moral and political implications, right? Wouldn't we Wouldn't we agree? Yes. So it's like this isn't that. So it, it's not like we haven't seen this before. Is what I'm saying. This idea of of politics bleeding over into prices. I agree. Well, I think we've covered a lot. I would love to continue a discussion about this as we learn more about the market and see more instances like GameStop, uh, the the short squeezes and and stuff like that happening because they have continued to happen since January. Um, Here's and there's. So of course the biggest one being GameStop and that's why we, we footnote it and and discuss it and analyze it. But it's uh, I think it's been a pleasure uh, talking with you guys about this, really breaking down what, uh, what mimetic nihilism really means and, how this kind of shapes the new, uh, maybe a new wave of economics that that does have an input uh, of political and social and decentralized tribalism uh, as an input that is that is a new variable that's that's hard to measure and, and has a lot of interesting game theory attached to it. So it was uh, it was a pleasure to to dissect this with you guys. Always fun talking with you guys. Yeah, you as well, brother. I enjoyed it. I enjoy the title too. And I think we did, we did cover it well. You know, the, the meme really is like looking back at these Egyptian hieroglyphs. It's we live in a culture now where pictures and symbols can say thousands of words. And now the information age with it spread instantaneously, it, it truly is a, revol- a revolution in, in thought and innovation and communication. And I, I suppose what may be seen as nihilism may just be really uh, when people see things that are no longer serving, they they, they have no desire to uh, keep it afloat. Yeah, that's well said. Yeah, well said. Well, guys, yeah, thank you very much for your time. And I really look forward to next week. I think it's going to be a good one. Rock right, on. Look forward to it, too. All right. See you guys.